Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Woo! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. A conversation with the author Jason Maxim awaits you. He wrote the book, The Art of Troubleshooting, which is one I have gifted often over the past few years. Jason, ironically, happened to be a client of mine when I was working back at United Layer in the Tuner Paul Data Center. And he always was coming up with interesting problem sets for, for us to solve as a business uh, and that he and I would would share in the different meetings that, that, that took place over the two years that we worked together. Um, Jason has gone through a number of acquisitions and seen a business grow from uh, literally just a handful of employees to a couple hundred and then acquired and then reacquired and then reacquired again. Uh, he is now semi-retired, uh, but he does some amazing things helping and coaching people and how to think strategically about solving engineering and really not just engineering, but any problems that, that are in front of you. I think you guys will appreciate and, and gals will appreciate this conversation with Jason uh, really some insightful stuff on how to think critically about solving the problem sets in front of us, no matter what they are. So without further ado, here's a conversation with Jason. Jason Maxim, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of I Love Data Centers. Don, I'm very excited to be here. So for, for those listening, Jason is a former client of mine from long, long time ago who also is a entrepreneur and author who writes on how to fix things and just the art of fixing things. In fact, he is the author of a book called The Art of Troubleshooting, which I you can find on Amazon and I will also be putting up on my website with the other books that are recommendations uh, on openspectruminc.com. But I have read through this book many times and gifted it many, many more times to do friends and partners and clients in the industry. Uh, and the book truly is on the art of troubleshooting. And what we're going to get into today, Jason, if you're if you're willing and able, is maybe some of the fun, interesting stories that you've had working in the data center industry and beyond the data center industry, troubleshooting some very fun, interesting problems. Definitely. So before we get into any of that, man, um, where where do you reside right now? Where are you where are you hanging out? I live in sunny San Francisco in a neighborhood called the Sunset, which is kind of right on the right on the fog line. So sometimes it's really nice here, and, and sometimes I can't I can't see the house across the street. So <laughs> that's that's San Francisco for you. When I used to live in Santa Cruz, it was kind of the same thing. I was 
about a couple houses up from the from the beach and you could like see the cloud line and the fog line that would just hang about a block out and would just stay there for most of the day or half the day and you'd always just hope that the wind wind would move things about a block away so that you could get some sun <laughs> i also live right next to golden gate park as well um which is an amazing every time i go in there i i, I see something new um and, and there's like there's bison in there there's weird statues. Just a great, great thing to live next to. There's bison, like live yeah. bison. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there is. We have. A, there's a bison paddock, uh, and uh, the first time I, I stumbled uh, upon it, it, it blew my mind. But yes, there are there are bison in uh, Golden Gate Park. I had no idea. So, are you born and raised in in and around NorCal? No, uh, I grew up in the Midwest, born in Minnesota, uh, but grew up in Wisconsin, right next door. Yeah, I think that's I think that's why you and I actually clicked back in the day. I've, I have found when I was working in the in the Bay Area that the people I got and got along with uh, the best tended to come from the Midwest. There's some something about those Midwest values that uh, are are real. Yeah, and and something about growing up in a cold place. Uh, they say. They say it builds character. Um, you know, when your mom bundles you up uh, and puts a snow shovel in your hand and, and shoves you out the door. <laughs> right, at, um, at 4.30, just so that you can get the cars out the door at 6 o'clock in the morning to get wherever you need to go. But, uh, you know, there's only so much character you can accumulate, so that's, that's why I eventually left <laughs> the Midwest. Where did you go to? Uh, well, I went to the uh, University of Wisconsin, um, and then uh, I lived briefly for a year in Iowa City, and then uh, I started to look for a real job. I, I started a company um, that you know, was middle, mildly successful, then moved back to my parents, and it was time to find a real job. And so I got a job here in San Francisco working for a company called Alexa, 1999, the height of the internet boom, very exciting time to move out here. Um, and then of course <laughs> things went sideways. Um, but I was lucky enough to, you know, find other, other avenues of employment and stick around. Of course, uh, many of the people that I knew, uh, when I moved out here, um, you know, moved back East or changed careers entirely or didn't, didn't stick around. So, so funny enough, I, uh, just did a interview with Tim Pozar. I don't know if you remember Tim from the, Oh yeah. Yeah, so he he spent a stint at at Alexa and um, Internet Archive before he came over to United Layer back in the day. But I'm I'm curious whenever whenever I talk with fellow geeks, did you grow up in a in a household that was technologically savvy? I mean, were you around tech, or was that something that you kind of sought after on your own? Depends on what you mean by that. I mean, my my dad is a scientist. He's got a, a PhD in chemical engineering. And so there was always that hanging around. Um, and we got our first computer pretty early on in my life, an Apple IIc. And we had computers at school, too. Uh, so definitely, you know, got an early start into the world of tech that way. Gotcha. And what, just so we can, you know, if, you, if you're able, if you're willing uh, to date yourself, when when did you graduate from University of Wisconsin? Yeah, I was the class of 1998. Gotcha. So you're four, four years my, my elder. Um, okay, so what was, it, what was the, the startup that you, that you had? 
back in the day? Oh, uh, yeah, right out of college. Yeah, so, uh, so I moved to Iowa City and started a company with my best friend, John. And we did like interactive CD-ROMs. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and websites, kind of just really basic, uh, you know, tech computer stuff that, of course, was really valuable back then because no one, no one else was doing it. And uh, our, big, our big client uh, at the time was the University of Iowa. And so, uh, yeah, we, I'm, but basically we were a consulting shop, right? You know, someone would say, hey, we, we want a we game uh, that you can put on a CD-ROM. Can you make that for us? Or, or we need a, a website for our local business, that, that kind of stuff. And so uh, it, was a, it was a little consulting shop. It was a great first experience uh, because, you know, we were out there hustling, trying to make things go. Uh, and so, you know, all those kind of early, you know, the lessons that you learn as an entrepreneur, you know, we learned, we learned them 10 times, uh, just trying to sell these kind of very basic things in Iowa City, Iowa, <laughs> in the late 90s. So what made you walk away from all that? What, what happened was, is that our, um, the, you know, it was just a four-person shop, and we had one guy who was doing sales, and his his wife was a graduate student at the University of Iowa, and when she graduated, uh, she insisted that they leave Iowa. So basically, you know, our sales guys leaving, we all kind of looked at each other and said, do you want to do sales? Do you want to do sales? Do you want to do sales? And the answer was no. So uh, we just decided to dissolve go and go our separate ways. Um, and then, like I said, that was when I moved back in with my parents and started my job search. So you find yourself in the Bay Area around, what was it, 2000, 2001? Uh, yeah, 99. 99, even better. So you actually yeah. got to experience, you know, the quote-unquote heyday of, of the boom. Yeah, million-dollar million launch parties, you know, selling bags of concrete online with free shipping, like the whole thing. <laughs> it was here. Uh, there was like an amazing energy uh, when I first moved here. And, all, and a lot of the stuff that uh, you hear about now, you know, were, are things that uh, were kind of recycled from that time, too, where like, you know, you'd show up at an apartment listing and there'd be 20 other people there with their checks out. Um, you know, that kind of stuff was going on as well, too, in the, in, in the, at the height of the moon. And it's happening all over again, from what I yeah. hear. You know, I'm now in Raleigh, North Carolina, and moved out here in January of last year, in part because I was on a, a flight. I mean, there's a, many, a myriad of reasons why I decided to leave. Uh, but one of them was I was watching an episode of Silicon Valley on a flight, uh, a Virgin America flight, back from the East Coast. And I'd been doing a lot of travel for about three years straight, to the tune of like two different trips a month for three, four days at a time to different cities across the country. And I was watching this episode and I was laughing and crying at the same time because <laughs> it was hilarious, but I was realizing how, how mostly true the absolute absurdity was. And I just realized I, I need to get out of this. This is, <laughs> this is not a healthy place to raise a family and to just, you know, continue to grow and scale a business dealing with these dynamics and uh that's uh anyway the, the, one one yeah. of my many fun stories that triggers that went off in my brain where I was like this is this is not normal. I have a couple of thoughts about that. One, 
uh, I do love that show, and one of the reasons why I love it is because I feel like I know those characters. I've met I've met them in real life. Um, yeah, exactly. And two, uh, when you're talking about where to locate your business, um, definitely, I w- one of the challenges that we had uh, when I started my company here in San Francisco was hiring, convincing people to to move here, and and basically take a cut in their standard of living because you know before you could afford a a 2000 square foot home on a, on a regular lot. And then, and now, uh, even with a, you know, significantly increased salary, uh, you get to live in a, in a, in a closet. So that was a big challenge for us. Yeah. And it's, you know, as we just said, it's becoming a challenge again for a lot of employers, but we, you know, the, the conversation I want to have with you today is not about why why people should think about leaving San Francisco and or the pros and cons of leaving San Francisco. Um, it's more around the the very interesting lessons that you've learned over the years. And you know, I'm really intrigued, given the role that you had. I mean, you eventually became the head of infrastructure for a handful of different companies, and you know, we can kind of walk through that storyline so that people understand the context of where you're coming from. But what you know, what inspired you to sit down and write such a, a detailed, um, analytical uh, book about how to solve problems? I mean, it's literally 350 some odd pages. And as, you know, as, a, as an author myself who wrote a book that's nowhere near this detailed and in-depth, I feel for you, man, but this is a massive undertaking. <laughs> yes. At the end of my experience as co-founder and CTO of uh, a company I started here in San Francisco, uh, we sold the company, and I stayed with the company that acquired us for a while, but didn't like didn't get along with them. Um, and so it was time for me to go my my own way. And so I asked myself, you know, kind of, what have I learned? Uh, and I came to the conclusion that I had. I had become a pretty good troubleshooter uh, over the seven years that I was running this company because we had a very complicated infrastructure, um, you know, almost a thousand servers, you know, uh, you know, millions of lines of code, you know, a a large, very large engineering team, you know, data centers, uh, you know, all over the world. And so uh, when we would have problems, typically they would be very complicated and very difficult to untangle. Um, So, I felt that, of course, I you know learned many things uh, running that business, but uh, I felt I had become a very good troubleshooter, and that these lessons that I learned needed to be needed to be written down. And the other thing was is that I really needed something to do, right? You know, because uh, as an entrepreneur, your life uh, gets very uh, tangled up with your business, and so when the business goes away, there's a huge void. Uh, that that's that's opened up um, from that, um, and it needs to be filled with something. And for me, writing was that something. And you you had had enough margaritas poolside in exotic locations, or maybe it was yeah. probably while you're sipping margaritas poolside in exotic <laughs> locations where you're like, maybe I should write a book about this. <laughs> no, that's that's actually a good insight. There's um because there there's only so many you know video games that you can play. Uh, so many countries that you can travel to before you're like, okay, I, I need to do something, you know, productive again. 
And just to add some further context, the, the company that you were with, I don't know if you, can you speak to the details of what you guys were doing? I, you know, I could, but I'd rather you tell the story of what specifically it was that you were doing. Sure. Uh, so the company was called Discovery Mining, and we uh, did data mining um, for lawyers on very large data sets that were involved in legal actions. So some of these big cases that we worked on, there might be you know, millions of pieces of electronic evidence that were entered into the record. So lawyers, just kind of like, just like everyone else, were uh, are frequently kind of awash in a sea of information, and they need tools to help them make sense of it all. So we did everything from, uh, you know, basic keyword search all the way to artificial, artificial intelligence-based, you know, classification schemes. But basically what the problem that we were solving is that there are these huge document collections associated with these legal actions, and uh, lawyers need ability to go into them and pull out the key documents that are going to help them win the case. And so we wrote software that did that. Uh, it was delivered to them via a SaaS product. Yeah, and we worked on it for over seven years. And then you went through. A, didn't you go through a couple rounds of acquisitions? Yes. Yes, we had double acquisitions. Uh, we got we got acquired. And then maybe less than a year later, the company that acquired us got acquired. And so uh, uh, the first acquisition uh, went really well because the company that was acquiring us acquired was acquiring us for us. They liked us. They liked the product. They didn't have a competing product, and they were going to let us do our own thing as long as we were, you know, kicking butt. Um, but that second acquisition is where things came off the rails because uh, it was a, mu- a much larger company. Uh, they had a competing product, and so um, didn't didn't get along with them very well. All right, so then let's get to some of the fun, I guess, stories and in, in you know, along the journey and the path that you had. Uh, you know, I, I'm vaguely familiar with one of them uh, that you you sent me a link to not too long ago. The the write up on trying to get fiber, uh, a direct fiber link into your facility in the Presidio. That's a fun one. I'm sure you have other fun ones, but you know which which one do you think would be a good one to jump into? Yeah, let, let's start with that one. Uh, <laughs> we were we were located in, in kind of an odd place, uh, the uh, the Presidio of San Francisco, uh, which is a national park, and so the telecom situation there uh, was not not straightforward in the sense that they had this local government entity called Presidio Telecom for a while, and so. Uh, all the connections in the Presidio ran through them. And then from there, you were supposed to get on, you know, a, a major network um, like AT&T or, you know, level three or whatever from there. But I just wanted, <laughs> the, we, we, so uh, like I said, we, we were processing massive amounts of data. And when we would ingest this data, uh, you know, we didn't want to have to drive down to the data center at 200 Paul to do it. So we wanted a high-speed link between our offices and the data center. So uh, I looked on, uh, um, I looked around and found this thing called the uh, Optiman or the AT&T product. And it, it sounded like, it just sounded like something you'd order, you know, like a, like a pizza and it would, it, it would arrive. It, remember you, you mentioning that I haven't heard that name Optiman since, you know, 10 years ago, but you saying that has brought back a lot, a lot of, uh, anyway, keep going. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, well, I mean, and, and it's funny, uh, 
that um, I just got you know fiber uh, for my home internet, and it was so easy. Um, uh, but you know, this that's ten years ten years later, right? So he, he, here we were trying to do something like no one, almost no one had a, had a gigabit connection back then. So this was you know something kind of special, and uh, it took I think it took eleven months to get it installed um, because there were all these uh, you know little systems that I had to deal with. There was uh, uh, there was the Presidio, there was the California Public Utilities Commission, there was uh, our ISP, there was the, the people who, who you know, um, owned the, uh, uh, the the data center, uh, Digital Real Estate Trust. It, it was like, <laughs> and like getting them to work together to make this thing happen was like, it was insane. So, uh, and then even after we installed it, you know, of course it didn't work right, 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 right away. So uh, it, I, it was 399 days before we were actually able to use this thing for, for business. Um, and it was one of those things where at the end, I was like, it was just it was, turning it on and using it was, was just felt anticlimactic. I was like, ah, oh, God, this thing. Now, was it because there, had, there was like significant trenching that had to be done? Or was, was literally the, the physical component already in place? It was just getting it to work? Well, there was some, there was some last mile problems, right? So we, we did have to get fiber pulled to our building, um, but of course that doesn't take you know that doesn't take a year. Uh, you can you can order a guys in a truck to come and do that in you know, in a week or two, right? So as long as you have the right of ways and, and that you know the, the the permission to do it. But that was the problem was like uh, getting the permission to do these things to make these connections happen between these various entities. Um, uh, that, that was the hard part. And it was frustrating for me because I felt like I had to become the project manager of this thing. You know, like I had to like, uh, understand all these different organizations, understand who I was supposed to talk to, follow up with them. Um, so I, I basically became the project manager on this, on this project. Yeah. So what, what were the lessons learned? Like walking away from that experience, definitely anticlimactic. You're like, great. The service that I've wanted to pay you for for over a year now finally flipping works, and I'm paying you a large sum of money for it. Um, but what what lessons did you take away from that? Well, I, I guess one of them is whenever I look at a new kind of telecom situation, I try to assess what is going to be easy. Uh, like, so you know, if the building already has Comcast in it, you know, that's <laughs> that's the big win, right? Just, just being able to like you know pick up the phone and be like, can you turn on this internet connection? And because because the service is already in the building, that that's a huge win, right? So um, uh, so a good example of that is you know uh, I am I'm co-owner of a of a community workshop in um, in Soma, and we were looking at an internet connection, and uh, one of my uh, one of my colleagues wanted to get this you know this small ISP uh, to do our internet. But of course, the you know their service wasn't in the neighborhood. Their you know their their lines weren't pulled anywhere near our building. I'm like, oh my god, you know that's this this company might have great looking service on paper. It might be really cheap theoretically, but like you know, getting them that last mile. Let's let's avoid that. <laughs> uh, that that's definitely the, one of the lessons. Is that yeah, like you know when you when you're fighting these telecom battles, you might want to think about what's going to be easy and what's going to be hard and. And maybe bias yourself towards the easy stuff. It's it still dawns on me, given the nature of the the work that I do these days, how how little 
accurate information, most of these large carriers, the smaller carriers tend to have most of their stuff together, but the large carriers, you know, how little they know about what products and services they can offer inside even large production grade facilities that they're, that they have large, you know, paychecks coming out of. Uh, It's just absolutely fascinating to me. And, you know, I, I ask around constantly how, why, what, who, where, and one of the the conversations I was actually having with the uh, CEO of a large master agency uh, called Microcorp out of Atlanta, Karen Fields, I was lamenting to her. I was just kind of bitching, basically. I'm like, you know, you live in this world. You deal with these carriers on a regular basis. How the heck is it that they don't know what's on net and what services they can deliver out of these production facilities that they're making millions of dollars a year out of? And her answer was twofold. It was the reality of the acquisitions that have taken place over the years means that you have one bureaucracy acquiring another bureaucracy that may or may not have accurate data to begin with. And they simply don't, you know, so that's one of them. You just have data sets that are um, accumulated across multiple organizations that no one has time to really vet. Uh, and then that second piece, which ties into what I just said, is they, they literally are so slammed just trying to push services out that they've never dedicated to any one person to go and do the audit of what's where. From my eyes, you know, the objective, uh, ignorant observer, it would seem to me that hiring one or two people to literally just do that audit would make a heck of a lot of sense, even a third party, so that you could very quickly turn around and use your customers. You know, we don't have to do a pre-assessment inside a facility just to see if we can deliver the service, but we already know because we tested it, you know, a month ago or two months ago that it can or can't work there. Yeah. And that, that's, yeah, that's probably a, a good, a good insight. Uh, yeah. If you, if you have a company that's just like an amalgamation of 10 other companies and they've all kind of come together and they've had different engineering practices and different, you know, you know, they different tele- telecom vendors and all this kind of stuff. And then you kind of mash it together and yet, but yet you want to have, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a brochure of products that is, you know, only three or four pages long. That's, you know, that's hard to do. Um, and the other thing I think that at play here is like, it seems uh, that the problem is very specific, right? And, and like, I have this building, it's located, you know, on this GPS point, um, and it connects to this other, uh, you know, this uh, local exchange, which also has of a specific set of equipment, right? And so, like, but but when you're doing these these build outs, you have to really get into those details, right? You're like, okay, you know, what what's what's what does the last mile actually look like? Um, and as you point out, if it was built by ten different companies, it can be really complicated, <laughs> and and not uniform either. So if if you're consulting with a a peer who says, Jason, you've literally wrote the book on troubleshooting. And I'm trying to deal with all kinds of issues within my own company. What are, you know, it, what are the first steps that you think I should take uh, or, or actions I should take or, or thought process should I go through in order to better myself and to better tackle everything on my plate? Well, I wrote this thing called the uh, Universal Troubleshooting Guide, um, and it's a list of questions that you can ask yourself when you're encountering a problem, and um, they're kind of ordered 
from simple to you know uh, exotic, if you will. Um, and that's because of my experience troubleshooting is that most of the problems are easily resolved uh, by focusing on the basics, right? So you know, is it plugged in? Does it have gas? If you if you look at this you know list of questions here, and I've got it right in front of me, the first couple questions are very simple, right? Have all the prerequisites for operation been satisfied? For example, is it plugged in, right? So that that gets to that. Um, is the problem clearly defined? Can the problem be reproduced? What makes the problem worse? What makes it better? What's changed, right? So, you know, those six or seven questions alone will probably, you know, solve, you know, a good chunk of of troubleshooting problems that you might have. Um, but but again, it gets back to this this idea that. Most problems are, are, are pretty simple in origin, um, and so the solution is, is likewise very simple. But Is that, uh, is that in ahead. the book? Uh, yes. Yep. Uh, it is in the book, and of course, it's on, it's on my website as well. Uh, and I will, just so listeners know, all this information is going to be in the show notes uh, on the website. So if you're listening, you can, you can go to the website and find all these links to the articles and the book and the uh, different different things that we're talking about. Right. So um, what's next? So Jason, I've gone through those, those first 10 steps. I have a better understanding of what's going on, but things continue to go wrong. Like what help me. Okay. The, 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 usually the next frontier is data collection. So if, if, if the problem isn't kind of, uh, you know, related to one of those simple questions, uh, then it's time to start collecting data. And if you start collecting data, you can start plotting trends and start making correlations. You're like, okay, you know, my it goes out, uh, my service goes out, you know, during these times. You know, what else is going on during those times? Is my usage high? Is my usage low? Typically, in my experience, uh, yeah, like I said, data collection is the is the next step. Um, and of course, uh, in the world of data centers and ISPs, data, uh, data collection should be at the heart of your, you know. Uh, systems teams and and their and their troubleshooting efforts. I know in in, in my personal experience, uh, I I basically had one person on my team that was devoted exclu- exclusively to uh, data collection and and processing all that data. So creating all you know automated charts and graphs so that we could all, we could drill in and say like um, you know server X Y Z. What is the CPU utilization like? Um, and and like I said, start to draw these correlations between uh, you know incidents that our customers might report um, and things that were going on in the minutia of our of our infrastructure. But you might have to stick in a lot of probes to start to begin to understand what's going on, right? You could be like, oh, yeah, we're already tracking our network utilization, but that might not be good enough, right? So because network utilization is an abstraction that might depend on you know a thousand different things, right? You've got the you know, a router somewhere, you've got, you know, hundreds of machines hooked up to it, right? And so, like, you're going to want to start breaking that down and understanding all those little data points. Um, so that typically was the the way to go when we were having these kind of trickier problems that weren't easily resolved just by asking some clever questions. What are some of the other tangible stories and experiences that you've had that you'd think, you know, listeners could gain some insight from or, or get a good laugh out of? <laughs> sure. Um, well, okay. So, so back to this idea that infrastructure is specific in the sense that like it's a, it's a particular building 
Um, w- one of uh, our main data-, data centers was 200 Paul in uh, in San Francisco, and it's kind of in a sketchy neighborhood, um, as you might know. Uh, and so neighborhood's gotten a that. little bit better over over the last five ten years, but yeah, it was definitely. There were a handful of muggings that occurred right outside the facility about 15 years ago. Even yeah. I would probably well, say about 12 years ago. And actually, one of those muggings was one of my employees. No way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we sent. We uh, have a security guard now out front and a security gate and and all that jazz. <laughs> and lights on 24/7 in the parking lots. They've you know they've improved the security since the mugging. But that's the I didn't realize that was one of your employees. Yeah, we, we sent them down to, um, uh, I think, make some updates to, to our web servers. Um, and as he was waiting for the bus, uh, he got jumped. And they, uh, they, took, his, they took his USB uh, hard drive, uh, which is, oh, God. Um, so we, we had to change all of our certificates on our, on our web server after that. Although I don't think, you know, the people who stole the hard drive were, you know, necessarily that tech savvy, but we, we took that precaution every, anyway. Um, uh, and actually, uh, funny story, that same engineer got locked in the stairwell at 200 Paul as well. Um, uh, I think he, he was looking for the bathroom and, uh, you know, so, somehow wandered into a stairwell and, uh, was pounding on the door for the next hour. So I had almost a similar thing happen. If you, it, what's crazy is if you don't, if you didn't have a cell phone on, you're basically at the liberty of staring at the security camera and like jumping around trying to make a scene until someone noticed that you were there to to come and help you. I mean, yeah, yeah. That particular engineer asked that he would uh, ask to never have to go to the data center ever again, and we said, okay. <laughs> uh, once once you've gotten mugged and locked in the stairwell, you you don't have to go back. <laughs> Were those the two stories, or was that leading into another story? No, no, those those you know some of my best ones, definitely. Gotcha. All right, so let's get back into the book. So you you cover a variety of different things in here, based on how to approach the situation. As you were saying, the questions to ask. You give a lot of different stories in here. One of my favorites uh, is towards the end. It is specifically called the Chaos Monkey, where it's something. It's uh, yeah, release the oh, yeah. Chaos Monkeys. Yep. Um, and that, it's a topic that I bring up with clients, and I try to bring up as often as I can. But it, it revolves around basically disaster recovery and recovering from anomalies that may occur or disasters that may occur. And it's still mind-boggling to me both how few companies have prepared themselves for any kind of outage or disaster and how even fewer take the time to practice recovering from a potential outage. And I was wondering if you, you know, what your thoughts were and any insights you have on that specific topic. (laughs) Disaster recovery requires practice, right? So um, this, this tripped us up uh, uh, personally, you know, as as a company um, where it wasn't enough to be like, oh yeah, that's how you you know, there's some document somewhere that explains how to restore a MySQL database. Um, that's not good enough, right? Like every engineer who's involved in disaster recovery has to know the procedure and has to have done it and has to have verified that it actually works, right? Um, 
another good example of this is uh, uh, it's not enough to take backups. You have to actually like, you know, uh, understand the process to restore them. This happened to us as well. We were, we were, we thought we were backing stuff up and then uh, there was an outage and I was like, I need, I need this particular file restored. And we discovered that we couldn't, couldn't do that. <laughs> um, so you really have to go through the full cycle of, you know, not, not only taking these precautions and these procedures, but, but also, you know, practicing the actual recovery process. Um, that's very important. And, and now in the case of the, the chaos monkeys, because of the way, because of services like EC2 and, these other modular infrastructures, there's a kind of a new dimension to this. And that is where you can be practicing uh, disaster recovery all the time. <laughs> um, and that's, that's what Netflix has done. Basically, they have these little programs that go around and just shut things off um, on their live service, uh, which is cool and, on, on very, and also unheard of. Um, if you tell that to your average engineer, they'd be like, why would you do that? You're right. Because um, to them, uh, that process is really scary and probably because they haven't practiced it very well. They don't know what's going to happen. Right. But um, Netflix does this on, on their live service. Um, and uh, the idea is that um, there's, their infrastructure is so modular uh, and so redundant is that and so you can you can turn off any given server turn off any given stream and it, and it should recover. And um, so it, it's, a, it's a great way to think about engineering, but still, I think, pretty, pretty exotic um, to your, your average company, your average IT shop. Well, that's, that's the perfect lead into the next question that I have for you. Because, you know, imagine you're talking to a friend of yours who is, a, you know, a fellow infrastructure director or even a CTO, CIO, and they... They, they understand that they need to have a strategy in place. They'd really love to get their team to a place where when an outage occurs, everyone doesn't freak out and think to themselves, oh, oh crap, how do we solve this? Uh, that, they're, you know, that they're ready, that they're capable, that they're experienced, that they can simply follow a known process to, to get things back online without causing you know, major drama. But they have a hard time explaining up the food chain why it's worth them doing it. And that's that's what a lot of these women and men who are in these roles are literally facing a situation where intuitively they know that they, they should have something in place. They just have a hard time telling the story and really selling the story to the board or to the CXO, to the CFO. You know, we need to spend a decent chunk of change to put some systems and processes in place such that we don't have exponentially an exponentially larger problem should something fail down the road. Like what, what advice or counsel or coaching would you give someone in, in that place? Okay. So first off on the, on the challenge of this, um, unfortunately <laughs> it usually takes an incident, a bad incident, a bad, uh, an outage or a bad, uh, and, and the bad PR that flows from it to really get management focused on the problem. Uh, I think a good proxy for that is maybe, you could uh, accumulate a, a treasure trove of uh, news articles about other companies who it's happened to, and 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 maybe you would get yeah, management would get the idea from just reading that. Like, oh, look at look at this company that they they had this out as they and they lost this number of customers. 
you know, this company had a data breach and they're out of business now, right? And so, you know, maybe you can drive home the negative consequences uh, by proxy that way. Yeah, fear. Using um, fear as a tool, that's a good one. Yeah, well, it, it works. So, <laughs> uh, it, you know, uh, a lot of people think that uh, uh, we should only use po- in positive motivation, um, but uh, negative motivation works as well, too. And, and usually in life, you have to combine the two. It's not enough to... Uh, you know, it's fine to say, you know, if you touch the stove, you're going to get burned. You know, that's negative motivation. And and so, uh, yeah, no problem using it. Um, and like I said, unfortunately, that's because there's so many competing priorities uh, for the IT, uh, you know, uh, portion of a company. You you might have to do that. You might have to you might have to do a little scare uh, scare tactic once in a while to to be like, hey, this is important. And look what happens if we're not going to do it. I mean, this this is a keen topic, and a lot of companies are thinking about it these days, especially because we have you know cloud computing, right? So infrastructure as a service, you know, on demand compute and storage utilization is is readily available, and that's one of the big selling points for these services. Is you know you can just turn it on and use it when you need it. Uh, and you can, yeah. you know, push data back. I mean, th- the reality is software over the last handful of years alone has made it immensely easier for people to push applications around. But at the end of the day, y- you still have to go through the process of setting up the process and procedure and testing and, and whatnot. And so it, this is a huge topic in, in the industry right now. And a lot of people are banging their head against the wall saying, look, this is clearly something that we need to do but they're having a hard time putting putting it into practical business realities so that the CFOs and CXOs will actually approve a strategy. Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that. One, I think you you have to have enough kind of free bandwidth in your business to to fight for this kind of stuff. Um, it's funny. I I, um, I used to know this uh, engineer who used to work for eBay, <laughs> and. Uh, during their their really rapid growth period, he would talk about these projects that would that they would do. Um, so basically, almost all of their resources, all the time, were devoted to scaling. And he, but but occasionally they'd have these things, and I think they called them headroom projects. And and that was when they had you know just enough resources to uh, you know poke their heads above above water and and do something that wasn't related to scaling. And but that kind of mentality, you know, hopefully it should come from the the CTO or this BIO. Be like, okay, uh, you know, to only devote resources to uh, new features or to scaling is a misallocation of resources uh, because uh, these other things, these more defensive projects, all also require our attention as well. So uh, it usually uh, is incumbent upon the engineering management team to, to fight to fight for these things, um, and also because they're they're the ones who are going to be the most resp- responsible too, right? So, like when there's an outage, when there's when there's an incident, you know, the board, the CEO, you know, gives the evil eye to the CTO or the CIO. Um, so they're the the ones that are going to be responsible. So they're also the ones that are that need to advocate um, for this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's you, you bring up a good point. Um that making sure that you're fully aware of what resources you have available within your organization before you embark on such an endeavor is key. And in fact, you, you have a quote in here. It's a picture of someone who's basically free falling skydiving. Right. And it says, uh, Hey, do you mind if I 
try out some new techniques while we're free falling <laughs> to our plummeting to our death right now. Um, and I feel like maybe that's a lot of, you know, I'm just thinking out loud here, but that's probably a, a concern of a lot of these, the, the directors is that they, they're already fighting so many fires as it is that the thought of having to do a test of a failure that they may not recover from at all, it seems maybe overwhelming and daunting. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that's why also I think it's important to to build in uh, the the ability to heal into your engineering processes. And and for us, that was agile. Um, the the test first, uh, the, or the, it's called test driven development, um, is a great way of saying you know this more defensive posture. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna build that in right to our engineering process. So. And we're going to make those decisions that this stuff is important up front and not later on when there's an incident. Um, and uh, are you familiar with test-driven development? No, and I think for those who are listening, they may also could uh, benefit from a, a, just a brief description of Agile as well. Sure. So Agile is a, is a group of uh, you know, software development methodologies that have kind of been uh, cobbled together under the, under the, the, uh, the name of, of Agile. A lot of uh, the, the way agile gets practiced in reality, at least from, from my experience, is that most companies kind of pick and choose. But for us, the mo- one of the most important uh, development principles uh, of agile was the thing called test-driven development. And that is before an engineer writes any features, they write code to test the feature. And so uh, if you write a test and the feature doesn't exist, uh, at first the test will fail. Then you go ahead and implement the feature, and the test passes. And what this means is that at the at the very end of your of your development project, you have this beautiful suite of tests um, that tests all the features that you implemented, and it's very good at spotting bugs later on um, because. What happens is that software, you know, it, it can get very complicated very quickly, right? Uh, you know, even just a small team writing code for a year. Uh, can churn out things that are more complicated than the human mind can understand. Well, this happened. This actually, this happened to us. Um, we our first uh, version of our website was written in PHP, and we had uh, and over the course of two years, it just became really uh, enormously complicated. And it got to the point where uh, I would ask an engineer to implement a feature, but they couldn't look me straight in the eye and tell me that the website was going to work after. They implemented this, you know. They just they just didn't know because uh, it was it was too complicated. So agile definitely solved that problem for us, specifically the test driven development part. Because what what happens is, is you say you know you have your code base, you ask your engineer to go implement a new feature, and what the, what happens is they run all of the tests that you had previously written, right? And so they're like, okay, not only does this new feature run, uh, does this new feature work, but everything else that we did before also works. So yeah, I'm feeling pretty confident about this. Let's let's push this out to the clients. So, uh, and of course, if you don't have that, you know, you're flying blind. You'd be like, okay, we we think the uh, 250 features that we uh, that were previously on the website still work, but yeah, we don't really know. And you know, we have some guy who uh, works in the quote QA department, and he clicks through it, but you know, you, you can't cover every possibility. You can't you know fix every. You can't test every feature. Anyway. Uh, test-driven development became uh, kind of the cornerstone for, for our engineering practice, and it definitely uh, lowered the anxiety level of our engineers for that reason, because they could be confident that at least, at least the stuff that worked before still works now. 
Yeah, that's that's a good practical story and, and food for thought in the data center world. One of the first things that I I ask about and look for when I'm touring through facilities is who who's actually responsible for and accountable for the uptime of the facility because of the, the SLA, right? So that 100% uptime guarantee or five nines or six nines is really at the end of the day, when you boil it down, a marketing gimmick, right? So, mm. you know, giving a client uh, a fraction of a percentage of their monthly bill in back to them for being down for multiple hours or even multiple days is in no way, shape, or form going to compensate that client in most cases for the downtime that they've incurred, right? So yep. by saying four nines, three nines, five nines, six nines, like what what objective criteria are you using to come up with this figure outside of simply a sales and marketing tactic and tool? And so when companies say, hey, you know, can you give me a five nines guarantee? Sales is always going to be like, sure, we'll give you a hundred percent uptime guarantee, which is what almost all data center providers give uh, clients in in almost all facilities these days. So what really boils down to then is what's going on inside the facility. What are the process and the procedures and the quote unquote mops and sops uh, that the company is leveraging to run that facility and maintain that facility? So my point is this, when I find that there are military personnel who are in the role of infrastructure facilities manager for a property, there's at least one level of, um, you know, a checkbox gets, gets checked off on my end that I know that there's probably someone who's very familiar with going through the same process over and over again and understands why you have to go through that same process over and over again, such that if there is an outage, they're not going to be freaking out. They simply just follow the process and understand that and can coach and teach to that. That's great, Dad. I, uh, if we could boil that down into a tagline, it'd be like, I'd, I'd much prefer procedures over marketing any day, right? Right. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's even quite specifically when I find out that there's a former like nuclear submarine engineer who's who's running the facilities for a facility, I I I, I have a, the utmost respect for not only the company that did that hire, um, but for that individual because you know for a fact that not only do they have the lives of all these people. I have a good friend of mine actually who who happened to spend many years in in a submarine and told me lots of interesting stories, but um, the utmost respect for someone who's truly responsible for those lives and then also for the nuclear reactor that's on board the ship, that if anything goes wrong with that, you're even more screwed <laughs> than just having a, a general routine problem on, on, the, on the vessel. Yeah, and there's definitely a wide variety of companies who either have that kind of, you know, uh, uh, aviation aeronautical nautical mentality or and 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 don't and and it shows in their outages but but of course obviously there's uh, there's trade-offs here right you know like you know having the the rigorous the rigorous 300 point checklist that's always followed you know there's a there's a cost to that there's a cost in terms of training and the staff time is devoted to those those procedures and processes and and that time can't be used for you know, building out new things or extending new features, right? So, you know, there's a there's a balance that has to be struck there. Um, and 
And but of course, when you for you as a client, you know you might be only interested in the uptime, uh, uh, you know, aspects of of what this company provides, and you don't care about the fancy web interface that shows you all the, um, uh, you know, all, gives you an insight into infrastructure. In fact, if you if you had to choose between the two, you'd rather choose uptime over over insight or, or vice versa. So, um, so anyway, I guess my point is that there there's trade offs. Yeah, and one of the key things that we try to get our clients that we that we work with to understand is yes, there's process, there's procedures. Yes, there's generators and UPS systems. But at the end of the day, you have to prepare for an outage because these facilities will go down. There's like very, very few, and there are a handful, but there's very few data centers, production data centers on the planet who have gone a decade without having an outage of some sort. So if your applications and your data and your company isn't prepared to deal with it, then you're going to have a problem. And a lot of engineers will just say, well, that's what I'm putting my infrastructure in a co-location facility for is to never go down. And, you know, yes, that's a big component of it, but you have to prepare for the outage because I think the statistic is something around like 72 plus percent of the outages that occur in data centers are not due to the infrastructure failing, but due to personnel failures like there's a person is the cause of the problem oh yeah for sure and that gets back to that kind of training and procedures angle uh which is usually just as important as the kind of the architecture technical and the physical layer that's going on too right if you if you don't have the the person uh who who understands how to get through the outage or, or to mitigate uh you know or to mitigate it when it first rears its head then um you know then it, it, there's going to be an incident, no matter how beautiful architected your your infrastructure is going to be. So I've got a question for you that's going to take the conversation in a little bit different of a track here. When I first heard of the book, The Art of Troubleshooting, and, and I bought a copy, or I think you sent me a copy, and I started reading through it, it dawned on me that this, you know, this book is far less of an art of troubleshooting as more a scientific analysis and study of troubleshooting. So where does this the art part of troubleshooting come in? That's a good that's a good question. Definitely troubleshooting can be very scientific. Back to the, you know, what I was saying about, you know, the data collection aspect, you know, that can be very very scientific. You can have a hypothesis, you can collect data, you can verify the hypothesis or you can reject it. But there's also a a part of troubleshooting that is more about experience and about intuition. Um and so you might have these these tools or strategies, um, but which one to apply at any given a given time isn't necessarily you know it it it, it definitely is, is uh, within the world of reason, but it isn't necessarily the world of science. And uh, throughout the book, just just to just to further uh, bring that point home is like it, these insights aren't just my own. I went and I interviewed um, ten people who I consider to also be to great great troubleshooters from um, HVAC repairmen to a doctor um, to computer programmers to you know uh, 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 automobile mechanics, and I wanted to get their insights uh, as well. Um, but there's definitely a, an experience based and an, intu- an intuition based. Uh, uh, aspect to to solving these problems, and, and I think the reason for that is because if it was just a matter of following a checklist and a manual, <laughs> there's definitely a, a lot of problems that are like that. Um, but troubleshooting often involves grappling with the unknown, um, and so it's not just a matter of following a, a straightforward checklist to get to to get 
answer. And so you have to rely on these kind of more, you know, more human um, uh, capabilities that we have. So one of the thoughts that I came up with as I was grappling with that that specific question had to do with, you know, people call following your gut, right? Or following your instinct, instinct, you know, that is something that is, you know, could you create a scientific process around that? Probably. Um, what I've learned through my own scientific analysis of following my gut and instinct is that I need to follow it a hell of a lot more often than I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm literally sitting here with a knee. My left knee is about twice the size of that. It should be because I dropped a trailer with two jet skis onto the inside of my knee as I was trying to push the whole thing back into my garage. Right. And, uh, so as a result, I'm dealing with the aftermath of that, which sucks. Let me tell you, don't, don't ever do that. Uh, don't ever drop that on your knee. But I literally thought to myself before I started doing it, you know what? I shouldn't do this. I should probably get someone to help me. And my instinct was like, get someone to help you. And then the other voice, which was just kind of the ego and the frantic nature of I had a million things going on that day was just like, screw it. You can get this done. Just just take care of it. Just rush and, and get it done, right? And so I, that part of my brain superseded the the practical instinct or the it, the first voice. And so I just went after it myself. And sure enough, here I am dealing with the aftermath. Um, so that, that was just my diagnosis. But I'm curious, you know, what what are, what's your perspective in the in troubleshooting process of you know following instinct or gut? I, I'm, I'm usually all for it. Um, I love tapping into, you know, kind of the deep experience, uh, especially amongst your veteran, uh, uh, you know, players in, a, in an organization. Um, they usually have, you know, pretty deep, uh, you know, pattern matching uh, algorithms, you know, in their head, in their in the bacteria of their gut or wherever wherever it lives, right? Um, and so it's just a matter of unlocking that, you know, finding it, uh, finding that information and, ask, and asking for it. Because a lot of times uh, that information is in a company, just that no one's seeking it out. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess this just gets back to the, the thing that, you know, solving these problems are, there's a level above uh, the technical layer um, that has to do with, you know, the human systems uh, around these machines, right? Because, you know, we, We've created these machines. Uh, we employ them for our our, our pleasure, our purposes, um, and so we are we are part of the we are part of the system. Um, and I think a lot of uh, you know maybe right brain engineering types don't realize that though, there's this there is this human dimension and it's really important. Um, and and you, so you need to seek out those other those other places where this information is embedded, and it's not necessarily in a manual. Uh, sometimes it's just a matter of talking to people in your company uh, to to unleash this information. So yeah, that's that's actually a good point. That within most organizations, there's far more answers that can be found by simply opening lines of communication within the organization. I, I don't know if you ever came across this dynamic, but there's there's another brilliant book that I require the the people that work with me to read. Um, called Lessons in Grid Computing, The System as a Mirror, and was written by a IT consultant who, as I got to know him and heard stories, one of my favorite was that he he's able to go to an organization and just interview the stakeholders within the company, you know, the different directors or SVPs or 
division heads. And by simply having conversations with them and learning how they interact with each other, he can then architect how their backend systems and network operate. And it's, you know, people mirror the systems that they build within organizations. And he found that if he can get the people talking to each other, he can then get the systems and the networks within the organization to start talking to to each other as well. There was also a, a pretty profound insight that someone said almost offhand that just continues to stick in my head, but it's around unified communication. So like the Cisco UCS chassis and and um, just other related unified communications and unified uh, systems that are hardware that integrates the network and the system and dev tests and just everything into one package. It's forcing communication within organizations, within divisions and silos that wouldn't normally communicate with each other, right? So if your dev servers and your web servers and your production servers and your network is all sitting in the same exact environment, those teams need to start talking to each other and working together versus, you know, the old paradigm where everything was desperate. Everything sat in its own silo. You could have multiple data centers running multiple environments for multiple teams, you know, not necessarily looking for you to to comment yeah. on that, but it's well, just the, a, it's a the, fascinating subject. Yeah, I mean, what you described about uh, learning about an organization just by talking to its people, that, that, that sounds beautiful. Um, uh, I wish I would have thought of that idea. Um, <laughs> I, what would happen for us is uh, uh, we would do this um, um, root cause analysis process called Five Whys, and uh, I was amazed just by getting the, the, the people into the same room and having them talk about things uh, really, like I said, 99% of all problems seem to be able to be resolved just from the experience that we had in house. It was actually amazing, um, but we just you just kind of needed that process to to unleash it. Did you say five whys or five lies? Five whys. Although five lies sounds like a really great process too. <laughs> <laughs> you just have someone you know go up go up in in front of the room and start telling whoppers you know <laughs> one after another. So what was the five whys process? Five whys process comes from Toyota. Uh, it's just a very simple idea that you take a failure and uh, by asking the question why five times, uh, you will eventually get to the, to the root cause of why something happened. And uh, for us, we, we found that we were able to, you know, just usually around the third why, we'd, we'd get to a, a root cause that um, we could attack. So have you heard of the Washington Monument problem? No, other than uh, I know you've you've got a little bit of it in the book. Yeah, it's it, it's a myth, but it's it's a it's a great story that really um, helps to communicate um, this this five wise um, process, and uh, it it goes like this. Um, uh, so the Washington Monument was crumbling. Why why was it crumbling? Well, because they were using this abrasive cleaner to clean it. Why were they uh, using the abrasive cleaner? Well because they were cleaning off all the bird poop. Well, why were there so many birds around? Well, the birds were attracted to um, the spiders. Why are there so many spiders? Well, because there was a lot of gnats. Why were there so many gnats? Well, it turns on, turns out they turn the lights on. Uh, and the, the lights, uh, by turning the lights on early in the evening, they would attract the gnats. And so by turning the lights on early in the evening, it would lead to this whole causal chain that led to the uh, crumbling of the monument. 
Um, so of course the the implication is is that if you uh, turn off the lights or turn them on later in the evening, there'll be fewer gnats, uh, which will mean fewer spiders, which will mean fewer birds, which will mean less bird poop, and will uh, prevent the uh, the application of this cleaner and will uh, uh, preserve our beautiful monument. So uh, that's a good story about a causal chain where uh, the the triggering event is is counterintuitive. You you wouldn't think that turning on the light would lead to this other thing, you know, way later on in the in the chain. And and life works like that a lot too. Is where you're like, okay, you know, you 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 see this problem, but if you dig into it deeper, you realize that the root cause is, you know, it can sometimes often be hidden from you. And so you you need a way to get at it. So anyway, that's that's the the uh, the essence of the five wise process. It just invites you to you know, dig deeper into these problems with the idea being that the, the root cause uh, can sometimes be a couple layers away. Jason, I got to ask you, do, do you have any kids? Uh, no, I do not. So the funny thing is I learned that lesson. You would think I would learn it through just the different business classes and, and just life experience in the working world. But I actually learned it by having kids. I've got three kids now. And when my kids would constantly ask me why, right? I, I would appreciate it to a degree, but then I would always be like, because I said so, right? You know, just just get it done because I say so. But it, it really got me thinking, like asking the why, like they, they were chronically asking me why I was doing or saying or whatever. And my wife, same thing, or why they had to do certain things and had to justify and explain it. And quite literally 50% of the time, you know, we're on our third kid now who's four, our oldest is 11. So we've kind of gotten through a lot of the the process um, breakdown and, and re-architecture such that our, you know, our third kid has, has it a little bit easier than our first did for sure. But my first, my son was constantly asking us why. And about 50% of the time, my wife and I would eventually come to the conclusion, you know what? There's no reason why. We're only doing this because this is what we've been trained to do or trained to think, or we saw our parents do this. Um, but there's no real reason why we have to do this. So we're not going to do it. And it's, it's, it's quite interesting how much I've actually learned just by having, having a little person who's inquisitive little person around me all the time. That, that's awesome. And basically your kids were leading you through a uh, root cause analysis exercise of your life. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It didn't take a PhD. It just took a, a, an inquisitive two-year-old and three-year-old to, to do it. So one of the other funny stories that uh, actually I just saw this morning that you, you sparked it when you were talking about the, the Washington Monument. I saw a video of a satellite dish that has like a drum cover on top of it. And someone had made a phone call because they weren't receiving um, the signal from the satellite dish. So a technician came out to see what the heck was going on. And turns out the reason why the signal uh, had issues is because a woodpecker had poked a hole into the the cover of the dish and a squirrel was using it to host and, and basically hide acorns. And when they opened it up, it was something like 300 pounds of acorns he had stored inside the satellite dish. And the, you know, the way my brain works, I was just instantly thought, how, how in the world, if you're an engineer, do you plan around that type of a scenario, right? Like, how can you think to yourself, mm, maybe a squirrel may use this as a home if somehow there's a tear in the drum itself? Uh, yeah, well, and, that, and that's why um, 
and the answer is, I, I think you, you can't anticipate those, right? You'd like, you know, you, you just need to send that satellite dish out into the world and see what happens, right? Because that, that's the kind of learning that comes from actually using something to accomplish something in the real world, right? I don't know. My, my, my intuition would be like, you know, you shouldn't spend a lot of time trying to anticipate that, but instead incorporate it. So the next time one of those satellite dishes leaves the factory, right, you, know, you probably should have a fix for the, uh, for the squirrel problem. <laughs> right, and, and or send someone out to maintain, you know, just check them out and make sure that everything looks and is functioning normal. Like there, there was a, a tear that didn't look very large, and you probably couldn't tell from the outside just looking at it that there was so much stuff inside of it, right? But yeah. it's... Uh, yeah, it just it triggered all kinds of interesting stuff in my brain about how how nature always seems to find a way to just create interesting interesting problems for technology, right? And we think, oh, here, here's here's the end all be all solution to the problem, and you roll it out only to find that it it causes a chain reaction, an un, unexpected chain reaction. But to your point that the entrepreneur in me, as I'm sure in you, says at some point you just basically have to realize that you've, you've done everything you can. You've thought through every scenario that you can. We just got to get this out and see what it does. Right, because very, very often uh, the things that you're afraid of aren't the things that trip you up in the real world, right? So like you can spend a lot of time obsessing over, uh, you know, this possibility or that possibility, but 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 the thing that actually gets you is something that you didn't anticipate. So given that, you might as well just ship it and see what happens. A great example of that is, um, I think it was in, did, have you read The, the Black Swan uh, by, by Taleb? I haven't. It's been recommended numerous times. I haven't gotten my hands on it yet, though. There's, there's, a, there's a good story in that book uh, that I think gets to this problem as well. And I think he's talking about a, a casino. And they had all these uh, risk managers who were into like the the odds of the various games and, you know, like kind of like how do we prevent people from stealing from the casino? We have cat cameras and we've got pit bosses and we've got, you know, this whole, you know, uh, level of uh, you know, we're watching everybody. Um, and it turns out uh, that I think what happened in this particular casino is there was uh, uh, whenever someone won something. Uh, uh, over $10,000, I think it was, uh, there was a tax form um, that needed to be filed with the IRS, right? And so uh, it turns out that the employee who was in charge of this, instead of filing them with the IRS, just put them in a box somewhere, right? And this was kind of accumulating them, right? And, that's, and so like, uh, and so Tal's point was, is that like, uh, this casino uh, was, was obsessed with all these different ways that, that they could get screwed over. But the thing that actually brought them down was something they to- couldn't, they did, didn't anticipate at all, right? And so, and then that's not, not an argument for uh, not having all these other defenses. You know, obviously, you know, uh, casinos get cheated all the time and they should take, you know, uh, uh, you know, preventative measures to prevent that. But the thing that actually took them down was kind of outside of their risk model, out, outside of the way that they, uh, of their thinking. And I think that's a good metaphor for, uh, you know, these uh, from from the uh, the uh, squirrel and acorn in the uh, satellite dish problem. Yeah, most definitely. Um, so, Jason, what are you working on these days? Like, what what what's keeping you busy these days? A couple things. Uh, I continue to write uh, for the art of troubleshooting. Um, I continue to publish articles about fixing things. But uh, the thing that's taken up a lot of my time recently is I've become co-owner of a community workshop and social club for motorcyclists here in San Francisco called Piston and Chain. 
yeah, it, it's it's kind of a cool project because it's completely different from my old life, my old digital life. This is something that happens in person with tools and happens in a specific place. <laughs> um, but I but I love it, and uh, it's it's a great place. Uh, we've we've got uh, a, a wall of tools and some lifts, and so people uh, can buy a membership and bring their motorcycle in and work on their bike. Uh, just a great great community of riders. And that's in San Francisco. Where, where's the physical shop? Yeah, it's in Soma, uh, in San Francisco. Where where so, can uh, people yeah. find information about that? Yeah, it's pistonandchain.com. Right on. That happened that happened to be an available domain name or did you have to pay a couple thousand bucks for it? No, it was available. Yep. Right on. So where can people learn more about the art of troubleshooting? Yeah, just go to my site, artoftroubleshooting.com. I um the the book that you've read, uh, you can download it for free. Uh, I also have the um the one page universal guide, which has all those great questions that you can ask yourself while you're uh, troubleshooting and then uh, over 50 articles to help you become a, a fix it master. It's all there. Well, I've got two last questions for you before I let you go, Jason. One is okay. what is the backdrop to your, to your computer right now? It is a view of earth from space. Right on. What, I guess, which part of Earth is showing? Is it the traditional North America view, or is it the other side? No, of the it's just like it's just like the curvature and the, like this uh, layer of clouds, and then you can see the moon in the background. Nice, nice picture. But but just on that, I uh, I actually have it have that feature turned on where I get a new desktop every day uh, because I I like novelty, so I like to keep it fresh. And do you know? Spark my curiosity. Do you use the pictures that you took yourself, or is it the stuff that Apple or or Microsoft is feeding you? Yeah, hey, it's a, it's 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 Apple stuff. That, I mean, the truth be told, is that I usually don't spend a lot of time looking at my desktop. It's it's always there. I the reason I ask the question, and I don't think I've explained this before, is because it 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 is an image that is there that we all look at frequently. But it's kind of yeah. in the background. It's like a subliminal thing. And as I, you know, as I, being the overthinker that I am, started looking at my life and the things that I surrounded myself with, I started realizing I, I want to put an image that I see frequently as a backdrop. That's something that's going to be inspirational, and something that you know that subliminal thing is going to inspire versus, you know, do the exact opposite or just create a dull a dull effect. Um, that's where you know. That's why I ask people. It gives me a little insight as to where people are coming from. But the the last question I have for you is: Do you you know you've been out of the industry for a while and out of the the physical world of the data center? But did did you maybe did you at one point ever love data centers or did you hate hate data centers? Okay, this is going to sound a little corny, but <laughs> I loved data centers because I imagined that my machines were happy there, <laughs> like. Like I imagine that this is where they would want to live, right? Because there was like power and air conditioning and a fast network, and so I I love data centers because I imagined that my machines would would would, would be happy there. Um, but as as for me as a human, I you know data centers are loud. Um, uh, I you know I would always wear earplugs, um, and and it was a, it was an extreme environment too. I, I don't know if you remember, but like. So, like, if you were standing in the cold row, you were, like, you know, freezing and you needed a jacket. <laughs> but if you were standing in the hot row, you know, you wish that you were wearing shorts. My sense was that, you know, this, these are not places for humans necessarily. 
but but they're great for machines. That's that's a interesting perspective that I don't think anyone has given yet. Is do the servers that live in data centers love data centers? <laughs> I love I, I love think, that you went there. I think they do. <laughs> so. Actually, I can't help but ask you one last, last final question, which is um, if you're talking to someone who's considering coming into the industry, you know, the data center industry, what what advice would you give them? Geez, I don't know. That's a hard question for me to answer because, uh, I mean, I was a consumer of data center products and I, I didn't necessarily work in the industry. So I can't say uh, it's hard for me to give someone advice, but I, I definitely think there's a person out there that loves to build the platform upon which other people can be successful. Um, and, and so for me personally, like I just, I love the idea of infrastructure because, you know, and, and when people use my infrastructure, I, you know, I, a big smile, uh, it comes across my face. So, you know, I, w- I guess I would ask them and like, are you that kind of person? And if the answer is yes, uh, you're probably going to love working with data centers? That's that's a great question. And it's actually a response that I frequently give to people who, who ask me who are coming into the industry. You know, if you're not passionate about it, and this isn't something that intrigues you and interests you, and you're doing it just because you think you're going to make a lot of money, or because you know someone in the space, uh, you know, the reality is, in, in the world we live in today, it's a very competitive and the people who love what they do are going to end up being exceedingly more successful than those who are there just because it's a job. Um, Jason, I greatly, greatly appreciate you taking the time. And I hope it's not uh, three years before we, we reconnect. Definitely, Sean. It was great, it was great talking to you. I, uh, I'll give you a shout next time I'm in San Francisco, and I'd love to get a tour of the, your shop. Yeah, come on by. Do you ride? I, if my knee wasn't jacked up, I would say yes, but, uh, I think I'm not going to be writing for at least a couple of months until this thing heals. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely let me know if you're in San Francisco. Have a beautiful night. All right. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.